My name is Andy. I help people live life on purpose. This podcast explores the mystery, beauty, and complexity of life through conversations with an array of incredible practitioners, all of them working at the edge of what's possible for humanity. This is a place for big dreams, bold creativity, and fierce hope. Welcome to the Wonder Dome. If you're inspired by this conversation and you'd like to see it reach more people, you can help the Wonder Dome take flight by sharing it with friends and colleagues, subscribing, giving us a high star rating, and best of all, leaving a glowing review. If you'd like to go even further, consider becoming a monthly supporter. You'll help me keep the lights on and support a wide range of charitable causes. You can learn more at mindfulcreative.coach. Thanks in advance for helping us inspire the world. My guest today is Miles Enriquez Morales. Miles is a poet, an athlete, and a student in Los Angeles. He started boxing in Longmont, Colorado, where he eventually became a coach for the gym's youth classes. And he hosts a class called Trans Boxing, which is specifically a boxing class for trans, non-binary, and gender non-conforming people in LA. And he sits at this wonderful intersection of poetry, which I, the story in my head I have about poetry is, a, is a, an art and a practice of sensitivity and nuance and discernment and attention and perhaps a certain kind of aggression, depending on the poet, but an overarching feeling of gentleness, which is maybe does poetry short service in some cases. And the story I have of boxing is one of competition, of, of violence, of domination, can be quite beautiful and artistic in its own way and wonderful to watch. But I don't know, I personally haven't met many poet boxers or boxer poets, and Miles is one of those. He was recommended to me uh, from a past guest, Koko Saamase, who is also a writer in the uh, Master in Fine Arts program that they're both in. This conversation was particularly meaningful and important to me because the question of gender and biology and identity is really alive right now in a, in a very politically charged and often violent and harmful way. And although I certainly have personal biases and opinions about how we should be treating each other right now, probably no surprise we've been listening in to, to treat each other as humans first. That's uh, not something that uh, that we're doing very well as a culture. And often these dividing lines become politicized and weaponized, and, and as a result, we dehumanize each other. And what I love about Miles' story, his journey into becoming a boxer, really sits right in this context where there's so much energy that's often referred to as quote-unquote toxic. And he talks about where he encounters that energy and where actually he's found safety and found camaraderie and found kinship and found a space where he can be him, period. And that other boxers who might come from very different backgrounds can still stand in the ring with him and stand alongside him. You might also hear my little dude in the background here. <laughs> Part of me is like, oh, I gotta record, wait until he goes so I can record this, but... My sense is that Miles would welcome 
his voice here, and I welcome his voice here too, as a father of a young man who is going to grow up to be a man in the society that we have, or that will be, 10, 20, 30 years from now. So, this conversation is for anyone who's willing to hold questions of, of masculinity and gender identity gently, with curiosity, and, and meet someone who's walking right into spaces that are often seemingly written for only one kind of person, and he's showing us that, no, this is for every kind of person. As a teacher, as an artist, as a, as a competitor, and it was really fun to be in this conversation. So let's get settled in and hear what Miles has for us. All right. Welcome, Miles. Welcome to the Wonder Dawn. Glad to be here. Yeah, I'm really glad to have you here. Uh, I mentioned this to you before we started recording, but one thing I like to do when I've talked to someone really special is say, hey, who else should I talk to? And uh, so when I talk to Coco or, or T, as you call her, the, the, she said, you know, Miles, you got to talk to Miles. So, <laughs> so here we are. And it's kind of fun. I, I feel really privileged sometimes that uh, the, this vehicle for connection brings me in touch with people who chances are I would otherwise never, never get to connect with. And I've really enjoyed our time before we started recording. So I'm excited to see what might emerge as we, as we play together today. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I think this is a poetry obsession of mine, but thinking about uh, things in terms of roots and trees and the ways that um, trees like communicate with each other underground sometimes are connected and are just actually one big tree um, and hoping that in some way uh, humans can kind of replicate that by reaching out to one another and yeah just trusting I think we're mm. both as you mentioned here on a trust that um, auntie's recommendation but also uh, I would say trust and, and curiosity um, as well mm. of like, mm. yeah, where is this going to go? What are mm. we going to talk about today? Mm. I love that insight, trust and curiosity. I, I have sort of a sense that uh, the ways in which much of, much of conventional life and has been organized is not about prioritizing or trusting curiosity. And uh so thank you for naming it that way. Yeah, let's. I really mm -hmm. want to invite that into this space today. And if folks end up hearing this, if we decide to share it, I hope maybe it sparks some of that for them as well. That sort of possibility of connecting to that, which we can't always see at first and mm -hmm. following kind of our noses as it were and following kind of excitement, following the pole. And as I say that, like one pole I'm in touch with is I'm aware that you uh, have at least two public identities that you're putting in the world. One is as a, as a boxer and a boxing coach. And, mm -hmm. and then another is as a poet, which you've already presenced right here at the top. Uh, mm -hmm. And both of those, I like, I have stories in my head about both of those identities more generally about, <laughs> about 
who a boxer is and who a poet is. And the stories in my head don't usually intersect. And so I'm really curious in whatever way you want to take us into it. Like, how do, you, how do those two identities live in you? Or how do you make sense of the relationship between the two? I would love actually to hear your um, ideas. Of my stories. Of, of yeah. both, yes, your stories yeah. of both boxer and poet. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. The the kind of, I just watched Creed 3, like, uh, <laughs> of course. you know, however, maybe a month ago or something like that. So that's like the most, my most recent exposure to stories about boxing. Um, but like, which, and I thought the movie kind of explore this pretty effectively. Like one story I have about boxers is that, is that they don't express emotion mm. poetically that, that, or, you know, some some boxers, you might describe their boxing in poetic terms, you know, like they're so graceful, Muhammad Ali, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee, like mm. in that sense. But it's about athleticism. It's about movement. It's about force and power and competition. And what I loved about the movie was this exploration of two men who saw each other as brothers for a time and then had that ruptured and then had to find a way back to that. And, you know, they found that by hitting each other <laughs> as opposed to just, you know, like, like uh, uh, as opposed to um, I'm blanking on her name, but, but the, the wife who's like, can't you just talk about uh, what you're feeling? Of course. You yes. know, like, and so that's the, so I thought like, okay, that's a, that's at least a part of it is like, even a soulful boxer is a boxer who kind of uses his fists as a as a vehicle of expression not not necessarily his voice or his words and then mm. if then like more generally that maybe not ever that some boxers are not even inter- like soulful boxer what are you talking about i like to fight i like to win uh i like to be the strongest like there's a kind of a story of dominance and victory that's present in the sport and i think a lot of men that i see who who are drawn to the sport it's not the whole story but i but I see that. And then maybe the last story I'm aware of in my head is also there's this story of um, kind of boxing as a vehicle for honing character, for mm. for kind of developing and growing and becoming more of a man or more of yourself through kind of um, pushing through dis- discomfort and pushing through pain. So those are some of my boxing stories. <laughs> and my poet stories are like, deeply soulful people who attend Mm. to nature and reality and to observation and in a in a sort of maybe analogous kind of disciplined way in the same way that a boxer might train and train for like the perfect form a poet is sort of training i'm putting that in air quotes for the perfect form to say something to to the written word that the sound the just so expression that kind of gets at something beautiful and true and universal but it's a very sensitive art it's a very it's a very quiet art it's a very kind of listening for what comes through kind of art and uh and it's and Although I could maybe start now as I talk out loud, I could be aware of poems that are aggressive and confrontational and what have you. Like in general, the story in my head is that poets are not like about aggression and dominance and strength. It's much more about 
subtlety and sensitivity and flow. So they do feel like two, in my inner world, they feel like two very different identities that might have some 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 cool things in common around art and craft and growth, but seem to draw very different people in general. So to meet mm. someone who very publicly says, yeah, I'm both kind of go, it makes me sit up a little straight and go, oh. So yeah, what's coming up for you as I share those those narratives that are running through me? A few things. I think the first one is that when I tell people in my boxing gym that I go to for my own training that I am studying poetry um, or that I'm studying creative writing and focusing in poetry, they get very excited. People really enjoy it to hear it. Oh, nice. I think it's very interesting. And I think if anything, that that is more indicative of the space that I've chosen um, mm-hmm. because the last the the boxing gym that I originally learned how to box in I think I would have gotten a similar reception from my peers but my coach I think would have been a little more that's very I think he would have summed it up with my femininity and and being at the time living as a woman um which for those who don't know um I'm transgender and uh I lived as a woman until I was 23 years old. So around 2020 pandemic is when I came Mm. out Mm. and first learned how to box, Um, identifying as a woman and being the only woman at my gym. And so it was, um, I think, to go back to your original question about how those identities intersect I don't even think I realized this until now but like I kind of came into them in very similar ways poetry Mm. and boxing I think and it was so not I don't think what you would expect and that's why it's able to work I think is because it's transformed um but I I came into both as a way for me to kind of deny myself like or avoid things Mm. For me, poetry felt so freeing because I could talk about a thing without saying anything about it. I could talk about the worst, like the the hardest things I had ever experienced in code. And people would somehow still glean like, oh, like these things have happened to you. Like uh, you've, you've, you're talking about grief and and um loss and whatever else but nowhere in the poem did I actually say that and I thought Mm. that was so it Mm. felt like magic Mm. because I had spent so long not being able to talk about it not knowing how to talk about things that I had experienced and although all of a sudden through this poem I could and then kind of similar with boxing like I got into boxing. I don't, not really, both of times I was not conscious of this. It wasn't a conscious decision. It was just, oh, I want to do this. It feels good. I started boxing and figured out how to just completely like disconnect from my body. Like I think a lot of people talk about um, utilizing boxing or using exercise, especially as a way of getting more in touch with your body. And yeah, Mm -hmm. that's the Mm -hmm. ideal. But at the time, deep in the closet, deep 
um, in like an eating disorder, uh, I was using it as a way of like rejecting my body and mm -hmm. kind of being like, I'm going to fix whatever's happening to me. Um, and this is the only way I know how. And it's this like hyper masculine way that makes me feel strong, mm -hmm. makes me feel dominant, mm -hmm. but it's all a facade. Um, and not even realizing kind of in the process, like, oh, I'm forming intimate relationships with men, like, are like, intimate in the way that you do with boxing which yeah is, it is I a can... kind of intimacy isn't it right i mean to be that close to someone's sweat and blood and breath and body and the impact and the contact yeah uh i want to i want to say it so badly you're not supposed to say the quiet part out loud but i guess that's the poet in me is anytime i do have these interactions with men presumably straight cisgender men at boxing gyms. I want to be like, this is so homoerotic. Do you not, <laughs> yeah. are you not seeing it? Like you just wanting to deny yourself the, I'm not going to say that that's what's going on with Creed, but the, um, the way that, yeah, like they just, they can't talk to each other, but mm -hmm. they can, they can beat the shit out of each other in the ring and that's going to restore their friendship in some way. And, the way that we're taught like this is the only way to be a man um so so that's what i went for and and with poetry i think i also bought into the idea of like a poet uh only uses metaphors only mm -hmm. speaks in like purple prose very dense language and i've gone through phases over my own poetry career of um or, or or crafting of my art that I have started trying to be more frank in what I say and just put exactly what I'm thinking on the page, but then also I can weave into it and I can have that choice um, the same way that now with boxing, I can be who I am in the ring um, and I don't have to hide. I don't have to pretend like, a lot of times like I'm not afraid right mm. like I, I try mm. to I've, I've found through different crafts namely like I took an acting class I <laughs> and I think I was talking to my therapist at the time I was like I'm so terrified what do I do when I'm terrified how do I like not be terrified and they were like you just have to be and then it'll mm. go away you can't mm. pretend like you're not because then mm. it'll just come out in other ways um mm. or like you'll straight up have a panic attack and applying that to I guess both by boxing and even like public readings of poetry where I, I have a moment where I'm just like shivering and like shaking and mm -hmm. and I let it run through my body and then I'm okay because mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. it's scary a lot of those things are are terrifying and um I think that yeah yeah so I guess I guess it's very complicated the way that those two parts of myself are intertwined, but they're very deeply, I guess, also just rooted in my own, the way that I've come into myself as an adult now mm. um, and mm. figured out my own identity. Mm. I'm, I'm kind of hearing this implicitly. Tell me if, if this is, is true that you started in both as a way to 
and you weren't necessarily totally conscious of it at the time, like with boxing, you're like, this just feels good. But, and, and maybe poetry had its version of like, this is, this is cool that I can do this thing and say this thing without really saying it. But it seems, it sounds to me like you've moved, evolved quite past that, that now uh, both forms of expression have arrived at a place where you have access to, yeah, I'm afraid. Yeah, this could be hard, but also I can move the way I choose to move or I can say the words I choose to say and I don't have to hide. That there's some way in which, although you came to the forms as a way of kind of trying to hide something or face something without consciously facing it, that now the forms are are giving you a space to, to not hide. Is that right? Does that feel true? That feels pretty accurate. Um... And I think a lot of that I owe to the people around me. Um, Mm -hmm. Like I said, with with poetry now being uh, in my cohort, being amongst others who um, allow me to both allow me and I'm at the point where if anybody was to somehow say, actually, no, that's wrong. I would just be like, okay, like <laughs> that's like for you, like yeah. that you can't see the beauty of whatever yeah. it is that I'm doing. Um, but but nobody has been like that, and it's so, uh, I think incredible, right? Like I think we touched on before recording started the current political atmosphere of everything. Yeah. Um, to very casually be able to, I I have so much fun telling people things like, oh, I went to a private all-girls Catholic school and just seeing the wheels turn. <laughs> some people, it's it's also a good litmus test for like how in the know are you? Because some people in a second, they get it. And other people are just really like a loading screen. <laughs> and then you see it click and you're like, okay, good, good. I didn't have to say it, uh, but, but it's fun. And even though... I'm personally not out, I, I'm, I'm not, which would be kind of impossible to come out to every single person at my boxing gym, but I haven't told my coaches or anything like that. And I don't feel the need to, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm aware that um, the way that I move about a space, they probably just assume I'm queer in some capacity. Mm-hmm. They might not even be aware that they're recognizing that. And nobody has said anything to me or made any kind of everyone is so sweet and it's like that should be the norm but I know mm-hmm. that at boxing mm-hmm. gyms especially it's not and so um I I kind of that's something that I both intentionally made like I only went to a gym where I felt safe and or only signed up for one um and I think I'm, I'm very grateful for the fact that that even exists, right? How did you, um, what were you tracking for consciously or not? So I get the sense you maybe tried out a few different gyms and you said this one. I mean, you you get a lot of data in, but like you you go for one visit, this is the one I feel safe. Just how do you like, yeah, say more about that. I think, there's a lot of different signals because I've been to a gym in Hollywood that had 
a pride flag up on the wall and their fighters were sparring with each other and it was just not great to watch it, it not in terms of form uh but certainly that but also in terms of how hard they're going with each other these guys are strapping on like 12 ounce gloves and you should never be sparring with less than 16 ounces mm. and it's mm. just dangerous uh and feeling like i'm not the sparring is not facilitated in a safe way so maybe you're accepting of me in this one way but the actual danger of the sport is not um being uh monitored or uh, uh managed correctly or to my own standards and then i've been in my current gym where they do have a very large don't tread on me flag which i'm not sure the actual meaning of but i i don't think it's great um <laughs> I do. I could. I know a bit, at least, of the history of it that I could share in a moment. But yeah, that's it, it. It often is associated with pretty conservative, individualistic kind of um, values that sometimes, perhaps, often intersect with racialized worldviews or worldviews about certain right ways to live and certain wrong ways to live. I. That's what I kind of got the sense of, just having seen the flag in my life and seeing. Um, the kinds of people that wave it not to make judgments of like visual cues but uh, the gym has never I have you know these like hand wraps the, the wraps that you put on underneath your gloves that um, have a rainbow pattern on them and I don't think yes. anyone's ever batted an eye um, like maybe I think there's been a kids class going on recently over the summer and I think I saw one kid kind of be like a little wide-eyed when he saw them and I was like oh you know what this means that's great <laughs> Just carry on um, yeah. nobody I think a big thing for me at my first gym um, and maybe we could put like a trigger warning for for viewers uh, was um, there was a lot of like fat shaming body shaming a mm. lot of um, basically encouraging fighters to develop disordered eating patterns, which I was very susceptible to since I already had a pre-existing uh, eating disorder. Mm -hmm. And so I had a hard boundary in my book of if I go into a gym and they say anything about my body, I'm out mm -hmm. and never mm -hmm. nothing. Nobody. I think one boxer there who is otherwise a very sweet man <laughs> has has said something along the lines of like oh you're a big guy and which i think is so interesting to being trans and going from people very explicitly you know kind of insinuating or saying that because you're a woman you you can't be fat or like that mm -hmm. fatness is mm -hmm. a certain level of bad whereas when you're a man you're allowed a little bit more fatness a little more grace in your size and uh that's that's very interesting to me but yeah, anyways big time double standard yeah. yeah but um i think that's the closest thing i've ever gotten to anyone uh, saying anything about my body yeah. in that space and i i was more amused than anything else because i'm just like oh at this point you know the coaches aren't saying anything to me none of my sparring partners or the partners i'm training with are saying anything to me like you're you're in the, maybe people will think it but like we're not in a space where that is uh, encouraged. And 
I love that. That was a big one for me. And I guess also, like I was saying, like safety and form teaching, like standards of teaching. Yeah. Is, I, I'm not going to say that I'm at the moment able to coach like a world champion or anything, but I can spot good boxing. I know yeah. Yeah. like when somebody knows how to teach fundamentals up to a certain level as opposed to somebody who's just like letting people go and wail on each other on their first day type of <laughs> gym. So yeah, that was, yeah. that was how I, um, cold, I suppose. Yeah. And I just, I thank you for sharing that. It sounds like an awesome gym. Um, mm. I am really struck. I love the juxtaposition in this, I think you used this word before the recording, but like performativity, right? Like, gosh, this is so, so nuanced, right? And I feel like some people have an allergy to, you know, oh, that's too PC or that's whatever. Like there's a sort of like in one direction, a kind of performativity of like, I will never make room for your identity because that's just, that's performativity. And then there's like another side of like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to put up a flag and tell you that you're safe here, but actually not going to create a safety. And, and I love the juxtaposition of like, Oh yeah, we have a don't tread on me flag here. And, and we actually are embodying that in a way that we take pretty seen. It sounds to me like we take pretty literally, which is like, everyone's got their thing. You don't tread on me. I won't tread on you. Like everyone welcome. (laughs) Let's get in the ring and box. They're and, closer. They're closer yeah. to the American spirit that, that <laughs> we, right. yeah. we advertise. And it's so interesting to me because every time I see it, I'm like, I know what this flag is supposed to mean. And then I know the way that people twist it for their own purposes. And it does seem like the gym really tries to embody like, no, like you can do whatever you want here. Yeah. Well, the flag comes, at least I, I might I might misrepresent this, but as I understand it, it comes it's kind of a Scots-Irish tradition. And uh, a lot of the Scottish-Irish immigrants who came to America, I don't quite remember the year, like kind of what century, what year it was, but they came from, um, you know, from Scotland and Ireland and and the UK, like having many of them having been involved in pretty intense border wars, hmm. like, like battles, along different lines across, you know, uh, across land ownership and territory. And then that was like amplified pretty intensively in Ireland when a potato famine hit and like a ton of people left Ireland because people were literally starving to death. But you have a lot of Scots-Irish who kind of brought that a version of that flag, which is basically say like, you know, we were forced out of our home through violence and we're violent too. Like we're, we have a descended from kind of a warrior's, and we want to create a space where we're like, this is it. This is our home. Don't tread on me. Mm. And, and so there's a bit of a, a rebel spirit in that, uh, in that statement that is also has some violence associated with it. But, uh, but, you know, there's something in it that it sounds to me like you're experiencing that connects to that. Like, I want to be who I am. Stop treading on me. Stop trying to take that from me. And if I need to, I'll fight back. I need maybe to we, fight back. Maybe we should repurpose this for uh for my trans community because yeah, <laughs> that, like don't um, get tread on me. Like just because that's that's uh, like you got your thing. 
it's enough. You don't need to come take my thing. And if you're going to try and come take my thing, like, all right, gloves on. <laughs> That's funny. Because, yeah, I do really associate it with, like, a conservative um, small government or, like, small federal government, right, kind yeah. of energy of uh, – and so I do agree with the energy of it, but I also don't think um, – I don't know. I don't know how that would work. I I don't try to think too much about federal law uh, I have the the privilege of being in a state where that yeah. isn't too much of a concern I don't have to worry about my hormone therapy or anything like that um, going away that I I'm, I'm gonna tell myself that um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. even though I'm very aware that that's a thing going on across that's a that's a very much a privilege um, yeah. and I think it just gives me it just gives me a lot of anxiety to think about the stuff going on and I think my own level of inability to do anything to change it and mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. um the way that I kind of cope with that is really just building up my own community uh I I suppose we make a lot of jokes when we're in our transboxing class of uh, creating our transgender army. Um, <laughs> this is our, this is our, you know, people, people think that, uh, that, that trans women especially are this dangerous, uh, mm-hmm. harmful force that, that, uh, might pose a threat. And part of me is kind of like, well, let's do it then. Let's mm-hmm. like <laughs> train mm-hmm. a bunch of trans mm-hmm. women to be able to, to kick ass. Mm-hmm. and give you something actually to worry about obviously that's not <laughs> <laughs> that's not uh what we're trying that's not the aim of transboxing but um it is something i think about and yeah. i think it's, i think it's funny but um yeah what we were just talking about too yeah the performativity the way that some places will say things like oh we accept uh, women and non-binary people. And that to me is so much more suspicious than um, a group that, that says, you know, the wrong words, but is supportive in some way of trans femininity. Um, because the women and non-binary thing, it, it sort of excludes men. And I know just from them not saying it, that they're counting trans women as men. And it's it's not even intentional. I think it's like a phrase that has caught on a lot, but it's rooted in, I don't know how much you know about um, like uh, radical uh, feminism or anti, what is it called? Transmisogyny specifically. Hmm. Both, both words evoke things for me, but I'd welcome you sharing more. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't count myself as, as an expert either. I'm not an expert either. For anybody listening who wants to know more about this, I would highly recommend like ContraPoints on YouTube. Um, I learned a lot of things from her and also just people in my life who have shared their own experiences of trans misogyny um, because I wasn't really educated on this stuff, nor 
in touch with anyone before transboxing before I started meeting um, my my own boxers uh, who go out in the world and um, have to deal with with a lot of bullshit as opposed to you know I have to deal with my own amount of what have you but trans masculinity is very invisible at the moment uh, I, I think a lot of people especially if you're not a very specific type of person um namely like small like like thin and white um aren't gonna be able to clock right mm. so i go about most of my life in a relative amount of privilege but also invisibility of like if i meet a trans person are they gonna know that they're trans if i meet if that i'm trans and like we're in this together um mm, mm, are they gonna if i meet another queer person i've been in a lot of situations now where i offer up my opinion about some sort of you know women's issue whatever it may be and i get kind of a weird look until i offer up like oh i'm a trans man like <laughs> and i'm kind of like shouldn't i just be able to you know have yeah, i'm not as long as i'm not talking over anybody suddenly that uh makes my opinion valuable that anyways mm. or mm. i forgot what i was talking about but um turf stuff uh yeah and this sort of connection to radical feminism and trans misogyny and some of the sort of less visible ways in which people are included or excluded i think was kind of the, the track we were on mm. Yeah, it's it's just interesting to me the way that um, people on the margins uh, are, there's always a way to found and validate um, experiences of queerness that don't line up with, oh, like, like, like there's a way to be trans and it's this way, or there's a way to be a woman right and it's you have a period or you have a baby and what does that mean for even so many cisgender women who don't have those same experiences like mm. I, I don't think um people who believe in in or, or, or ascribe to radical feminism feminist beliefs understand how much limitations they're placing on themselves by trying to define no, I'm a woman and I can tell by these like biologically essential things. Mm, and mm, mm. what what happens when you suddenly like can't have a baby for whatever reason? Uh, or um when you're a spicy question, yeah. <laughs> when your identity as a mother is compromised in this way mm, or, mm. or or what have you. And it's just I guess that also kind of ties into just like at the top of our conversation, the question of identity, like why I've, I've been thinking a lot about the ways that we um, build our identity and what foundations we utilize. And for me, I'm very suspicious of anything that feels easily marketed right or like mm. easily mm. easily consumable mm. um 
Mm-hmm. That's a whole other thing that ties into like capitalistic <laughs> suspicions that I have. But yeah, we can... well, we could go down that path, and that, that this is a happily interrogated capitalism on this show. Even as I am well aware of all the ways in which I, as a person alive at this time, participate in these things, but oh yeah, you know, I mean, I like I it feels to me. I'm going to try and make a connection here that's that that feels still true to me, which is goes back to the "don't tread on me" conversation we were having, like. And I'm, I think I'm starting as you describe some of the textures of radical feminism to, to kind of things are popping into my awareness of like people like, uh, you know, J.K. Rowling, who, yes. who sort of has a point of view about who is a woman and who's not a woman and, and the dangers of including some people who she thinks aren't a woman in, into that identity and so on and so on. Um, and that to me, there's a version of Don't Tread on Me that is like, has in parentheses like you said earlier the quiet part loud like the this, the quiet part loud of that version of don't tread on me is like i'm going to tread on you so mm. that you don't tread on me yeah because your existence is in some way a threat to my identity or at least a perceived threat so yeah. who pick your category uh you know so in the in the context of what what i'm understanding now is radical feminism it's like you know, uh, transgender women don't tread on me because you're not a woman and you saying you are treads on me. So back off, I'm going to harm you to protect mm. my identity. Mm. And it's this kind of a identity threat that um, leads to some pretty nasty violence, kind of proactive. The very thing that people say, like, I don't want to deal, you know, the sort of don't tread on me spirit of like, I don't want to be under someone else's thumb some of those people, I don't know how many, will very happily put un- other people under their thumb, you know. So it's so it's this like subtle hypocrisy, you know. Yeah. And um, and, and like I, a part of me can go, all right, I can get curious about like what's the threat that you feel, uh, someone who says these are the rules of what makes a woman. What is it you're afraid of? That mm. I think is a worthy, gentle curiosity to have. But the violence enacted in response to whatever that perceived threat might be can get pretty intense, whether it's psychological violence or physical violence. And, and it, it makes me think, um, have you heard of the book or read the book different by the primatologist Franz de Waal? Have you heard of this book? No, I, I, I don't even know what a primatologist is. Yeah. Someone who studies primates. I see. Yeah. Do we count as primates? We are primates. Yeah. So our closest <laughs> cousins are chimpanzees and bonobos right right uh who who like most people if you saw a picture of a chimp and a picture of a bonobo you wouldn't very immediately unless you had been exposed to a few examples and given some kind of distinctions you'd be like oh they're they're monkeys which they aren't they're primates they're apes but they look a lot alike and um and if you look long enough you can kind of see how we look like them too uh and they look like us but chimpanzees have a distinct culture and bonobos have a distinct culture. And I could kind of go down the rabbit hole of trying to articulate them. But the point of the book different, which I, it like had a very psychoactive effect in a positive way for me on like how I see the world. That that for me, by the way, is a sign of a really good book or work of art is does it actually like change something in me? And this book really did is he as a primatologist, he looked at our closest cousins who share like, you know, I don't know the exact number, but like 99 point whatever percent DNA with us. 
what what are the evolutionary underpinnings of gender in nature? And that's essentially the main thesis of the book. And the, like the headline is, at least as I understand it, is that yes, there there are biological sex differences. Mm-hmm. You know, certain like uh, chromosomal differences and genitalia differences that. Um, you know, across a statistical range, you see some patterns and some clustering that what we think of as gender clusters around biology, but not static one-to-one. Like the culture that 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 uh, you and I, to a certain extent, both live in, which is a hyper-binary, you know, that's the radical feminist is a version of this, of like, you are not a woman unless this and this and this is purely cultural. Yeah. Because looking looking at our closest cousins who don't have the same storytelling capabilities that we do, but nevertheless have certain cultural differentiations that like one tribe of bonobos and another tribe of bonobos don't all behave exactly the same way. There are cultural differences. We see in nature that there are there are some chimpanzees with what we might say are, you know, sex feminine bodies who represent very masculine you know, who, who behave in ways that are clearly uh, not like, there's not some, there's no one grooming. I'm putting this in air quotes because that's such a charged <laughs> word. There's no one grooming this right. chimpanzee. To, it's just who they are. Yeah. And that, that gender Trans- is yeah. on the spectrum and we can just see that in nature. And, and as a result, like the story that emerged from this book for me was like, let's just be more honest with ourselves that, yeah, there are lots of people like me who have what, what, what I might call like, you know, like this body with this genitalia and these chromosomes who also identify very strongly with, with some of the stereotypes of masculinity. And there are also people like me with this kind of body who don't. And there are lots of, and there are, are people who are somewhere in between who feel parts of them as being a bit more feminine and parts of being a bit more masculine and, you know, mm-hmm. just just this beautiful this beautiful spectrum that is in nature, that precedes and predates human culture. So I I really like am in touch with the way that something like radical feminism is kind of a violent cultural oh, yeah. thing that actually isn't rooted in what we see in nature. Because I'm I'm thinking whenever this kind of incongruity arises, right? Of the reality is one way why is an entire group of people choosing to deny it? My thought goes to who does this serve? Like what purpose does this, or what, 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 uh, does this then enable, right? Like an entire other group or, um, I don't know what you want to call it (laughs) to then, uh, how does it empower other people? Mm-hmm. and particularly thinking in binaries is so advantageous for then being able to work a narrative of well there's a group of people who are in power and a group of people who aren't mm-hmm. and this group of power right if you get down to the very what we were just talking about um there's a group of people who have a certain set of genitalia who must 
have these characteristics yeah. and and mm-hmm. there's a certain set of people who have opposite quote unquote who have these characteristics then when if you can buy into the belief that these things are innate and unchangeable and um uh inalterable then you can go all the way up to the top of there's a group of people who possess wealth and possess power mm, and mm. have a divine right to change mm. the law and hold office and hoard the wealth all right all the stuff that we've been talking about or like hinting at i guess or, or kind of skirting around and then it, there's an entire group of people who don't deserve those things it's kind of like all built upon and predicated upon i mean that one biological essentialist belief and i assume lots of other things as well um whether it be class or race or a uh disability right like um and so the second you start to question like is all of these things that we've just taken for granted as being a given actually a false narrative all everything else starts to fall apart like maybe the person in power doesn't actually deserve their power maybe um my boss is not my boss for any reason other than that just like that's a title that we all agree upon right this like agreed upon fabrication mm-hmm. and we don't actually have to question like is he a good boss does do they deserve to be in that position like if i don't question what makes me a woman or what makes me a man i would never maybe get to that position or i might get to it in a very roundabout way but like um i don't know i think there's a direct line between questioning gender questioning race class and then being able to move on to larger things like uh like social structure yeah. and yeah. um uh yeah that being said i have to go to the restroom really quickly okay. but pause <laughs> <laughs> here okay i Yeah, so I'm really, I'm appreciating, there's a way in which our willingness to ask questions about the dominant narrative Mm -hmm. can be really empowering, but also really threatening to people who benefit the most from the dominant narrative. And, uh, And yeah, I just have a belief that it doesn't have to be that way, that like maybe this is just a wish maybe it does, maybe this is just the way power works but you know if we again look at at the some of the learnings that Franz de Waal and, and other primatologists like Jane Goodall and others have seen looking at our closest kin is that um the most successful uh I don't I can't remember they use the word tribe but like groups or bands of chimpanzees and bonobos are the ones that have um caring, inclusive alpha leaders. And these are both, you know, uh, again, gender plays in here, but but it's not like always like, there's generally actually usually, usually an alpha male and an alpha female, but um, there's evidence in groups of chimpanzees that, that um, you know, chimps who don't fit the conventional, like I have th- this body and I'm this masculine energy, like 
there are some alpha females who have very masculine sort of gender identity types and are make make great alpha leaders and vice versa. So again, we're seeing in nature that although statistically we see certain kind of patterns, that the patterns are not so binary, that they are spread, that they spread across. And what's true, regardless of whatever the gender and sex of the alpha leaders of a, of a group of chimps or bonobos, is that they're good at managing conflict and helping mm. the other members of the group live in relative harmony with each other, even when things get heated. And the the groups that are really unpleasant to live in and don't la always, some can last for a long time, depending on kind of the environment, but like are groups where the approach to leadership is, is the strongest, physically strongest chimpanzee or bonobo attempts to take and seize power and keep that power and the fruits of that power, you know, food and basically food and sex being the kind of two most common fruits of that power to themselves. And inevitably, inevitably, sooner or later, the chimpanzee who tries to seize that power and keep it to themselves, there's a rebellion. And, and the moment that it's safe to do so, the other another chimp or other chimps will will either exile, like beat until that chimp runs away or kill that chimpanzee because no one wants to be, no one wants to be repressed and abused. It's scary and it's hard because that person that in this case, like the chimpanzee has a lot of power and uses it literally in the form of, of his body, mm. but it doesn't last. It doesn't keep. And, and so we see this kind of volatility in our politics, like constantly trying to knock the top person off the pedestal and the people in our culture who want that much power fighting for it. But we see in nature, like the best leaders are the leaders, the best authority figures are the ones who actually like bring the group together and help them work through their differences and help include both the strongest and the weakest. And they're not, yeah. and they're generally not the most physically imposing in the group. They're just really the most, uh, kind of interpersonal interrelationally aware and mm -hmm. and i just like kind of connects to me to a world which is like hey yeah i want to live in a world like and i'm imagining myself at your gym like there's probably some dudes at your gym that are like really fit this stereotype of like i'm strong i'm tough i don't talk about my emotions i want it like and i treat people well <laughs> you know like and like i'm welcome and there's also someone at the gym who's like quiet i don't like to stand out you know i'm just working on my form I'm, you know whatever okay you're here too as mm -hmm. opposed to like if you're going to be at this gym or if you're going to be in this society you know the an analogy i'm trying to make here is like you have to be like this and if you're not like yeah. that we get to take from you you don't belong and and it's just like so i just believe that there's a world where it's a both end where i can really identify as who i am as a man which which maybe tracks with my body or I can identify with who I am as a man. And that, that might appear visibly different to some people, you know, and that we can just be like, okay, cool. That would just be much, a much less, much more beautiful and much less harmful and may, and it just has more room, just has more room. So I don't know, maybe I'm, they may be in wishful thinking, but it seems like it's possible to me. Well, I think what you're getting at is, um wanting to be able to interlay like a, a specific microcosm for us in this instance it's 
a boxing gym, specifically my boxing gym that I go yeah. to and have described to you um, over like society as a whole, you would hope. And I think that's a very, it reminds me of like a poetic sentiment that mm. has been alive in boxing gyms for as long as I can remember that it's the place where the, uh, I was thinking specifically of like New York boxing gyms. There's this mm. narrative of mm. like the the businessman on Wall Street is the same level as the um, the kid who grew up in, you know, like a dangerous mm. part of Brooklyn mm. or, or the Bronx mm. and is here. They're here boxing together and like how beautiful. And I think, um, I think that's really interesting and to me it's very idyllic <laughs> and yeah, and yeah. and i would love yeah for that for it to be that simple but it's so there's so many different moving parts going on and and what i think is interesting too is thinking about how it can be true in this one space and then not even the one that you would think so for me thinking about like academia um like is that always true i think about my own cohort and the poets that are there and how easily, you know, there's some people who are writing poetry that rhymes every at the end. And are I had a poetry uh, workshop last semester where some people seemed a little like, you know, is this real poetry? Is this uh, on the same level as whatever else? And I'm kind of like, why are we gatekeeping? Why mm. is you would think that of all spaces a learning one would be one where people of all types of poetry all different types of craft beliefs could come together and work each other up um and well i i say that as that was my feeling that i was getting nobody ever said anything specific um to 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 denigrate that style um but I imagine it's even worse in other places and more like prestigious places where yeah. you go and maybe I have a poem that could go into like a Dr. Seuss book and somebody would, you know, be like, what the hell is this? Or, or anything, any like, yeah, uh, totally, totally. I, I know of um, literary workshops where people write fantasy and they are uh belittled in some way because oh, yeah. it's a, a it's one. a it's a genre right and not literary fiction or whatever and it's just um that's never happened i i loved i was in a short story workshop with t last semester and so many people submitted young adult um uh like literal like children's like works fit for you know like 12 year olds and I loved it I was mm. having so much fun reading it mm. because mm. not because I'm going to read that in my own downtime but because I could imagine like oh a young child would read this and I can help make it better um or, or help the the author um articulate what they're trying to get at more uh uh whatever you do in workshop <laughs> we can that's a whole other discussion yeah but like knowing that at a certain other amount of universities that kind of thing would be looked down upon um and i guess yeah just wishing wishing it was different but more directly wondering what 
it is that we can do to kind of facilitate the um either facilitate or redirect energy and resources into mm. the kinds of programs the kinds of spaces that are legitimately like accepting of of whatever it is yeah yeah there's a way in which uh as you say that it just gets me in touch with with how many different parts of our society would have to go through a, uh would have to consent to essentially redistributing power and inviting in different different people, different bodies, different forms of art, different expressions to just say, okay, how do how do we disentangle what excellence in any given fields? I mean, like, mm -hmm. I also don't want to dance around the fact that there are some boxers who are faster, stronger, right. smoother technique, you know, who win the fight. There are boxers who win the fight. And, yeah. and like, to your point, there's a, there's at least a narrative, which maybe isn't always played out in reality, but that like, it's not that the winning of the fight is just one part of this whole process of training and being a boxer. And that there's also a way in which the, the field becomes level that we drop status and that we just show up to train together and be together. So there's something about the like paradox of that, that there are absolutely are going to be some people who have differences in ability that give them certain advantages. And in some ways that's like a really, to go back one more time to Francois, like that's the sign of a healthy group is that the, the, the chimpanzees or bonobos who are good at a thing are allowed to do the good thing because it actually serves the whole group. You know, so, yeah. so the comp the competency should is valuable and should be uplifted. But at the same time, they, you know, the like a group of bonobos doesn't just go like, who's not good at stuff? You know, I mean, this can happen. We exile sometimes, but in general, like a, a, well, a healthy group is like, also you're a part of our group. You're a little baby or you, you didn't grow up. You, you're not <laughs> as strong, but you're part of our group and we're going to protect you and take care of you. And, and uh welcome you and invite what you have to offer that it's somehow there's a both end here that uh would require a pretty massive cultural shift at the level of these institutions whether it's academics or mm. or or professional sports or professional arts you know like there is a sort of way in which uh the gate gatekeepers can and on one level be useful because a really talented person can help another person grow their own talent, but the gatekeepers can also be wield their power in really egotistical and harmful ways. And as a result, like keep out maybe even more talented people because they're threatened by them or something like that. Right. That, yeah, it makes me think about two things. I'm going to try to hold on to them, but the, I guess the main thing I think about that is I think it's human nature to want to include and want to support everyone, including the weakest quote unquote, however we're measuring that in whatever group we're in. And it's, it's linked to um, like exploitative uh, practices, why we might leave somebody behind. Oh, you're slowing down my productivity you're, I'm not going to be able to get where I want if, you know, and that's not, I think that's so against what we're 
condition or what we're built to that's a conditioning mm -hmm. tactic um yeah we don't have to like i said get into capitalism but <laughs> that is <laughs> if we do that's like a part two that's gonna have to be a second recording we, we were dancing around it but right yeah. it's a direct i think um uh effect of living under capitalism that we are geared to try to maximize our own productivity and um marketability and uh our image and in the at the cost of a lot of times like relationships and uh helping out people who need our help and there was another thread that i had that i have completely that i see that I, i've been thinking about that happening because i am at a point in my own boxing coaching where i do my class i do my one-on-ones with my boxers and then i also teach at different gyms that i have put into a category in my brain of like fitness boxing gyms or like mm -hmm. fitness gyms like there's boxing gyms real boxing gyms and then there's fitness gyms and i'm at a level where i'm teaching at the fitness gyms because i either am not connected or i don't honestly a lot of it is that i don't feel good enough about my own craft mm -hmm. and my own level to teach at like a real boxing gym so uh but that aside what I'm recognizing is that I, I kind of what we have touched on earlier too, is like, it's all made up. It's all just a label put on there for either convenience sakes or to like make other people feel better about themselves. Right. Like real boxing can be real boxing as long as they're distanced from this group of people who for whatever reason they've deemed unworthy of real boxing but then I go in these spaces and I teach people you know I'm <laughs> what I think is real boxing and they understand and they're hungry for it and not mm -hmm. everyone wants to be a mm -hmm. fighter not everyone's mm -hmm. going to catch on super quickly but like people want to learn techniques and they want to know that what they're learning is actual boxing and uh and and applicable right in a in a sparring sense in a fighting sense and it's all just made up like, oh, these people aren't fitness boxers, whatever, because they are ignorant or because they're unable to learn. It's because like that whole side of things is like kept from them. And maybe myself and other people in my organization in transboxing that I work with, that is like kind of our niche. Our like purpose is to be this like bridge between like mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. groups of people who either don't want to teach them are not welcoming in some way aren't going to use people's pronouns aren't gonna um like are gonna say weird things about people's bodies right like as much as i had to endure a lot of bullshit in my first boxing gym like now i can pass that i not to be i hate like the whole like silver linings kind of energy about things but that is something that i've been able to do is teach people boxing and yeah i had to put up with stuff but other people don't have to mm -hmm. i don't i don't have to mm -hmm. um you now that you have the skill you can make a choice to say i can pass this skill on without forcing someone to put up with the bullshit that i had to put up with to get this skill and i have awareness too of like how uh 
that uh, I, that kind of environment of, of what it was that I went through operates. And so I can spot it and I don't have to deal with it either. I'm at my gym and anytime I don't think, I don't think it would ever happen because of the way that my gym is conducted. But if anything ever went to that, where somebody tried to say something about my weight or tried to say something about queerness, I could either just like dismiss it altogether because no, that's out of line with the standards of our gym. Or I could like talk to them and feel safe mm. and feel mm. like I have people mm. behind me who are going to support me mm. because of um, the way that the, the structure is set up. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Miles, this has been a uh, really meaningful for me. Thank you for being so generous with your journey and with your point of view on how these these worlds you inhabit can actually be quite quite beautifully inviting to many different people. And uh and the, the kind of connective tissue of like wherever they are skill-wise like the the desire and hunger to learn and grow uh and to show up to a place where they can feel safe and invited to do that without putting up with a lot of the bullshit that that a lot of people have to put up with i just think that's quite beautiful and appreciate it and if i didn't live on the other side of the country uh i would definitely definitely come to one of your boxing classes so we would love to have you yeah um but thank you for the conversation and um yeah yeah it's been really interesting uh exploring all these different threads thank you for mm, trying to keep our conversation steered <laughs> <laughs> there's a there's a certain uh, like uh i don't talk about this a lot on recordings but just as we come to a close like even that is a bit of a like you know the sort of a podcast is supposed to have an agenda and mm. you know my agenda is a non-agenda i don't you know steering is too strong a word I, riding right. surfing <laughs> fo like following uh dancing these are all who's the poet here <laughs> <laughs> well it's just a possibility that that so much of our lives are prescribed by like where you're going and where you get to and and the way you're supposed to get there and and so it's really fun for me to have a like just very selfishly to have a place in my life where where the the place we're trying to get to is connection and curiosity and intimacy not decisiveness or you know marketing our services or whatever the other things we could be using this platform for so thanks for being in the unknown with me with someone that you've never met until you know like an hour and a half ago thank you yeah. um I think the same goes for trusting me with your um to be on your podcast and uh to have a deep dive conversation with yeah mm. i appreciate it a lot um and i had fun awesome if if people particular people in uh you said you're out in la right yes so in particular people in la but really maybe anyone who wants to find find out more about you and your work um where should they go they can go um to transboxing.org to check out 
uh, either my classes in Los Angeles or even the classes that go on in New York City. Uh, and they could also check me out on Instagram. I'm under M. Enriquez Morales. Shoot me a DM. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, they, they'll find either um, links to my boxing work or my writing work on there and would love to facilitate that especially if you if anybody came to me and was like I listened to your podcast episode <laughs> now I want to box with you that would be pretty incredible oh, that would so. be so cool that would be so cool I hope that happens I mean like statistically it might be a long shot given the, the ge geography of it but like let's put that <laughs> let's put that possibility into the world right. that that there's someone hearing this right now who wants to train and they've just they've just for the first time heard their teacher mm. you know and go oh he's my teacher mm. i really that would be lovely so i'll hold that i'll hold that as a kind of a wish and a prayer that this that that happens and um we didn't get to talk as much about your writing as i wanted to but also we'll share definitely share all this in the show notes and and hopefully folks can find because you certainly have the soul of someone who's been walking <laughs> these worlds quite beautifully. So thank you, Miles. Thank you. It takes one to know one. <laughs> Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to the Wonder Dome. This podcast was produced by me, Andy Cahill, with support from Kelly Serqua, and audio editing and engineering services from Jim Serqua at Sump Pump Studios. The theme song was written and performed by Todd Marston. You can find the Wonder Dome wherever pods are casted. If you dig what we're doing here, please share widely, subscribe, and give us some love in the review boards. And if you feel called to support this humble offering to the world, while also making an even greater impact in the lives of others, consider becoming a monthly supporter. Not only will you help me keep the lights on and keep the show going for as long as I'm able, but 30% of all member contributions go directly in support of causes like the Black Lives Matter movement, the United Nations Refugee Agency, and the National Resources Defense Council. You can find out more at my website, mindfulcreative.coach, where you can also sign up for my newsletter, learn about my transformational coaching work, and get plugged into exclusive offers and community happenings. In the meantime, I'm wishing you a life of purpose, power, and presence. We need you now, more than ever.